0: All right, well, good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning on this uh, chilly uh, February morning to get together in the name of Jesus to worship together. We are in a series on Romans, um, and we uh, kicked that off a couple of weeks ago. And this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at the verses that were just read. So I want to invite you to grab a Bible and open that up to chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at these verses 18 through 32 uh, together. And as you're turning there to Romans 1, 18.32, 32, uh, I want you to imagine with me that you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for this week. It's just a, a normal doctor's appointment, kind of a, a physical or a checkup. You're feeling good, nothing's wrong. Uh, so you're, you're just going in for a checkup. When you get there, uh, they do all the normal stuff, right? They're gonna check your weight, they're gonna check your uh, height, they're gonna check your blood pressure, uh, maybe you're a little overweight, so you make a joke about it. You know, maybe uh, your blood pressure's a little high because you're nervous about being at the doctor. But otherwise, everything seems to be fine. They do some blood work, labs. Doctor comes in, does his thing, sits down at the computer, starts entering stuff in, and then he pivots on that little stool that they all sit on, and he looks you in the eye, and he's got this big grin on his face, and he says, "I've got some great news. There's a cure." Now, what's your thought when you hear that statement? I've got great news. There's a cure. (laughs) That would throw me. Would it throw you? Wait, I just came in for a physical. I feel fine. What what do you mean there's a cure? A cure for what? What do I have? That's what you're wondering. The reality is that Paul's letter to Romans is kind of like that moment. That's where we are in his letter because he's opened up with this good news. He's saying, hey, guys, I've got great news for all of you. The great news is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God to save everyone who believes in Jesus. And so Paul's letter opens uh, with these words like a good physician, right? He's saying, look, the good news is there's a cure. You can be made right with God, specifically by entrusting yourself to his son Jesus. And so as we read this, our first question then ought to be a lot like what it might be in that doctor's office moment. A cure, a cure for what? Saved, saved from what? What's, what's wrong with us, Paul, that God needs to save us? And Romans 1, 18 through 32, is Paul's attempt to answer that question. What's wrong with us? And he encapsulates it in verse 18. So look at verse 18. He kicks it off This way, he says, for, or you might say because, he's saving us because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if God's our physician, this is his diagnosis of humanity. That his wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness that in our unrighteousness we have suppressed the truth. And so Paul is going to say that is the diagnosis and it's the right one. And now he's going to make the case that God is right on the money with that diagnosis. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to consider what Paul says about our condition this morning. And I think the first question that comes up as we look at these words of Paul is what is God's wrath? What is God's wrath? And It's a question I think that makes most of us uncomfortable. We would rather just skip over this whole section, perhaps, and move on, maybe to chapter three or four, but I think it's really important that we focus in and we understand on God's wrath, and and to get there, I think we have to kind of take an on-ramp, if you will, to get to the answer to that question of what is God's wrath, and I think we have to begin, we have to understand God's wrath in the big story of the Bible. So that's where Paul begins, he starts with creation. Look in verse 19 and 20 at what he says. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, that's to humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? The creation of the world in the things that God has made, in the things that have been made. So God, in other words, has revealed himself in creation. His power is nature in creation and by what he has made. And he has lovingly made us for himself, for life with him. And that's how the story begins. But then something goes terribly wrong in the story. Verse 18, Paul points to the fact that humanity is ungodly and unrighteous, that they have suppressed the truth. Verse 25, he picks up on the same idea. He says, that humanity's exchanged the truth for a lie. This should sound familiar. This is Genesis three, right? So again, he's, he's drawing from creation, the full story of scripture. And Paul says like Adam and Eve in the garden, we've rebelled against God. We've not lived with God and infidelity to God. So evil, in other words, has entered into the world and as a result, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another has been marred. It's been broken. And so Paul, he begins to talk about this evil here in Romans chapter one. He says this evil has manifested itself in three key ways. First, it's caused us to deny natural knowledge of God. Just the evidence that there's a God in the world. We deny that. Second, it's corrupted our physical bodies, including, and specifically he talks about, our sexuality. And then third, it's led to this downward spiral of immoral living. So he says that's how evil has kind of worked its way into God's creation. In other words, what he's pointing to is the fact when our relationship with God, our vertical relationship, is severed, our horizontal relationships with one another and creation are corrupted. There's a direct correlation. Every part of us and every part of God's creation becomes infected as it were with evil. So this is the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean everything you do and all you are is evil. What it means is there's nothing in the world and no part of you and no part of creation that's not been touched or tainted by sin. And so what Paul is saying is that's a hard reality to face. And in truth, what we'd prefer to do as we live in idolatry and immorality, we prefer to deny it. We live in denial Under the power of sin and death, left to ourselves, we live in denial. Our disobedient hearts refuse to acknowledge God or the depth and breadth of sin and its consequences. It's easier to live in denial than to face those realities. So what Paul is doing here in these verses, he's holding up a mirror. He's holding up a mirror to us. These verses, he wants to confront us with this painful Diagnosis, that we were made by our Heavenly Father for life with him, but that by rejecting him, we now deserve his wrath. So with all that, here's what we can say about God's wrath. Here's how we might define God's wrath. God's wrath, then, is his anger against evil. I think that's a great shorthand way to think about God's wrath. God's wrath is his anger against evil evil. That's what Paul says. He's aiming it at what? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Again, the idea of God's wrath, I think, makes us uncomfortable. And I think part of that's because we think, well, isn't God all loving? And isn't God all forgiving? And isn't God all powerful? Anger from God, that kind of God, sounds inconsistent with a loving God? There's something like that, I think, that we struggle with. And the question is, is anger inconsistent with God's love? That's the question, I think. I love what John Stott says in his commentary on Romans. He says, the wrath of God is totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath, and I think this is his money statement, the alternative to wrath is not love. In other words, those two things are not polar opposites. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in a moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his judgment upon it. So think about it this way. You would never, you would never call a parent a good and loving parent who was indifferent, neutral to their child's abuse or suffering. And we shouldn't think of God that way either, our Heavenly Father that way. We want a God with wrath. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you actually Need a God with wrath. We want a God whose love burns against those things that hurt his children. That's wrath. We want a heavenly father whose anger burns against lies and deception. A father whose wrath burns against the denial of his fatherhood and his kingship in the world. The revelation of God's divine wrath is actually part of his revelation of grace. When we realize the truth of what we actually deserve, then the gospel, the diagnosis, and the prognosis come together to lead to salvation. Salvation in Christ, this is good news. The fact is it's scandalously good news if we understand it correctly because of what we deserve and yet what God has done for us in Christ. So we can say that about wrath, the wrath of God. I think second, maybe we asked, well, do we really deserve wrath? That's what Paul is going to kind of expound on. Do we deserve wrath? Paul says, unequivocally, we do. We do. And we need to hear that. He says we do deserve wrath. Verse 20, look at what he says. So they, being all of humankind, is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul says we have no excuse. We've all denied that God is God. And the worst part is, on some level, I don't care if you're the most devout atheist, you know it. You know it. When I was, uh, when I was about 14 years old, <clears throat> I borrowed my father's uh, down vest to wear to school because I thought it would be cool like my dad, wearing, my, wearing my, his vest. Took his vest, and uh, very unlike me, I actually remembered to bring it home and put it away after I was done with it. But what I forgot to do was to take the pack of cigarettes out that I put on the inside pocket. Yeah. A few, weeks, a few weeks later, my dad goes to get his vest on and feels something in the pocket, comes and says, hey, holding a pack of Marlboro Reds, are these yours? <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, dad, um, uh, yes. Yes, they are mine, but, uh, you know, they're mine, but I don't smoke. Because smoking is dumb, and I'm not a dumb kid. So they are mine, but here's what I've been doing. I've been going to school and selling them to all the dumb kids who do smoke. And I, I remember my dad kind of, I mean, he just had this grin on his face because it was so ridiculous. And he just said, well, let's throw these away and maybe, maybe we won't sell any more cigarettes to those dumb kids that smoke. <clears throat> and I thought of that story because, look, I was busted, right? I knew I was busted. My dad knew I was busted. And yet I totally denied it, right? Right? And I think Paul is telling us it's similar with God. Like, we're sinners. On some level, we know we're sinners. God knows we're sinners, and yet we, we deny it. We deny it. In verses 19 through 23, Paul is going to make an argument that the existence of God and the knowledge of God, it's actually hardwired into who we are no matter what we believe, and that the visible world points to an invisible creator, that in this world, human beings have been wired to know him and believe in him and to instinctively know something of God. That's what it means to be human. But instead, like me with my pack of cigarettes, we attempt to reason our way out of God. Paul says we refuse to glorify him and thank him. Instead, we become foolish in our thinking, darkened in our hearts, and exchange the glory of God for idols. And so what he's describing here is what it looks like to suppress the truth, what he said back in verse 18. Sin turns our minds away from God and even against God, and sin doesn't just affect our moral decisions. It infects our minds to such a degree that even our thinking is distorted. There's no part of us, again, that is not affected by evil and sin. So, again, stepping back and seeing this in the bigger story, ever since the fall, every single human being, including you and me, have faced this same downward spiral. And John Stott kind of characterizes this way. He said this downward spiral, it it has a pattern. It's disobedience, denial, leads to idolatry, to degrading passions, a depraved mind he says there's that pattern and paul's laying that out and the simple way to understand that pattern is what's happened is we no longer are worshiping god as god we are worshiping ourselves or something else in the created order and so we deserve his anger and we deserve his wrath this what wrath is do we deserve it yes and so then the question becomes Well, what's god going to do with us What's God gonna do with us? Verse 24, look at what he says there. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped him and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Paul wants it to be really clear. He's talking about worship. He even drops in a little prayer of worship there to highlight the contrast. Praise be to God the creator. Bless him forever, amen. God here is giving us up. What does that mean, that God gives us up? I think in simple terms, it means he lets us have what we demanded to have from him. And what have we demanded to have from him? The right to not to have to worship him. Lord, I want the right to say, no, I don't wanna worship you. I want that right. And so Paul says, fundamentally, we have a worship problem. To worship idols or to worship self, that's what we choose instead of to worship God. You know, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 declares that human beings were made in the image of God. What does that mean, in the image of God? It means we were made to actually reflect worship back to God, to praise him, to glorify him. That's what we were created for. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, uh, there's a similarity between the word that's used there for image and an idol, and what, what the idea is, that is that actually we were created as idols of the true God. We are living idols. If that word causes you issues, it's think of like living icons. We are little pictures of God in the world. And so what happens is that uh, we, I love how my professor Richard Lent said it in, in seminary. He said, we're like little mirrors, walking around, and every time someone looks in this mirror, what are they supposed to see? They're supposed to see the glory and the beauty and the goodness of God in and through us. We're like these little mirrors, but evil and sin have smashed the mirror. That's what's happened. Not only have they smashed the mirror, they've reoriented the mirror, so now that we don't worship, we're not oriented this way with our heads up and our hands up, worshiping the God of heaven. Instead, we become curved in on ourselves, Focused on us, selfish, self-minded, self-focused, self-worshipping. Instead of worshiping the God of heaven, we become bent in on ourselves, distorted and even defiled in the process. Defiled, spoiled, ruined. I I was thinking about this, um, what it means to be defiled. Defiled by sin, curved in on ourselves, ruined, spoiled. And I want you to imagine the, the most beautiful painting you've ever seen. But just, just imagine the most amazing work of art that you've ever gotten to see. I love Van Gogh, our family loves Van Gogh, Starry Night immediately popped in my head. I love that painting. And so imagine turning on the news to find out that someone's walked into the MoMA in New York, found Starry Night, and taken out a blade and just started slashing it to pieces. Just rip and then they rip it out of the frame, they throw it on the ground, they stomp on it, they defecate on it, they throw trash on it, they light it on fire. That's defiling. A beautiful piece of art. You know what the Bible says you are? God's masterpiece. His workmanship in Ephesians. You and I were created as these beautiful pieces of art, and sin defiles and dishonors God's masterpieces. It turns the living icons of God into something broken and ruined and defiled. What Paul does now is he's going to give concrete examples of what this looks like in real life. Verses 26 through 28. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, he says, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, before we kind of dig into this set of verses, I do want to just say a few things on the front end. In our cultural moment, reading a passage like this, kicks up all kinds of feelings and thoughts. Um, And I wanna say that this is not an issue in the Bible. It's an issue in our culture and in politics and all other kinds of things, but it's not an issue. And I'm gonna talk about what this is and how we should think about this. But I wanna say that because many of us in this room have friends, we have family uh, who might identify as LGBTQ, who might be questioning their gender. Maybe you're here today and questions about your own sexuality are very live questions for you. Maybe you're facing your own struggles. So this is not an issue. This touches on very personal wounds and fears for many of us. And so here, here's my hope, because we're going we're to delve into this not only today in, in, in part, but really over the next three weeks, because uh, I want us to pull back from Romans, because this is such a live issue, and really talk through this as a congregation. That's why we're having Sam Albury come. And I encourage you to register for that event, February 25th and 26th. Sam is one of the most gifted and pastoral and anointed speakers and pastors on this topic of sexuality and the gospel in the world. And he will be here. And so I encourage you to join us the 25th and the 26th. But here's my hope. My hope is that you will know in this community, no matter what you experience in your sexuality, that you are welcome and that you will know the hope that is yours in Christ that you will grow to understand his truth, his word, and that you will be enveloped in a community of grace and love as you do so. That's what we're trying to do here. Right? So <clears throat> over the next few weeks, again, we'll be looking more at this together. What I wanna do right now is I wanna focus just on this question specifically this morning. Why does Paul choose to focus on homosexual acts here? Why is he bringing this to the foreground in this passage? A few things. First, I think Paul is writing to Rome where where homosexual practice is not uncommon. And so there's a contextualization. He's speaking directly to something that's going on in the life of the church in Rome. But he's also speaking in broader terms about the sin of humanity. And so we can't just say, oh, well, this is just for Rome. He's talking in much broader terms. Term. Second, Paul does not focus here on sexual sins to the exclusion of other sins. As we're gonna see in just a minute, he's gonna give us a whole litany <laughs> of sins. So he's not just saying about, this is about a certain sin. Third, Paul's not suggesting that sexual sin is a particularly egregious sin in the sense that homosexuality or sexual sin in general is a worse sin. What Paul seems to be saying is that sexual immorality, including homosexual sin, is an important indicator of what happens when we choose to live without God, when we choose to worship self. Sexual sin is like a big red warning light on the dashboard of humanity that signals the downward trajectory of sin and evil. I think that's what he's saying. And so when he says women give themselves to women, men who give themselves to men, notice the word he uses to describe these relations. He says they're unnatural. He says they're unnatural. Nature being as God designed and as God intended. The Bible is clear and consistent that God's design for sex is between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. He made men and women, anatomically and procreatively to complement one another. That is not true of homosexual sex. And so it is not in line with God's good and perfect design. But for now, I think it's really important, again, for us to step back from this and see that what Paul is doing is he's presenting examples right? To make us aware of how broken humanity is in every regard and our deep need for God's grace. In other words, his point is not specifically focused on sexual sin in the sense that we should focus on sexual sinners. He's actually saying quite the opposite that we have all sinned and that we have all defiled the image of God. And that's why he goes on from 28 to 32 to give us this intense list of our brokenness and our sin. He says in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that's human beings, did not see fit to worship God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Anybody made it so far? right? Disobedient to parents. Okay, you all failed. You all just failed because at some point you weren't foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, right? He's cataloging the moral behaviors of human beings, thoroughly infected with sin. We all have a sin problem. Paul's list is not exhaustive, but it's thorough enough, isn't it? It's thorough enough that if we had any temptation to judge those who are in sexual sin and think we are better, Paul drops the hammer in 28 through 32. The minute you draw a line, think about it this way. The minute you draw a line and you say, okay, here's the line and on this side are the good people and over here are the bad people. And you say, okay, I'm gonna make sure I'm on the right side of the line. Here's what Paul's doing in those verses. While you're looking at that line and saying, bad people over there, good people over here, he's drawing a line behind you. <laughs> and every time you step back, there's another line, Right? That's his point. There's always another line. And we were talking about this in staff, and I love how Eric Mingle, who said, uh, he said it this way. He said, Paul says the line between good and evil isn't drawn between us and them. It's actually drawn between us and God. And so the point is not that some people are worse and deserve God's wrath. The point is that the world's gone horribly wrong, horribly wrong because of human rebellion against God, and there is no escape, no escape from the verdict for any of us. Paul's argument, in other words, in these verses is airtight. So let me close with this. Paul's gonna continue to unpack this for the next two chapters, so I just want you to brace yourself. It's intense, and if you're reading this at home, and I encourage you to do that, just keep in mind this bigger story of God's creation and the fall and the redemptive work of Jesus the good news of the gospel. In Romans 3.23, Paul sums up the bad news this way. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news for that bad news is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all have access to God's grace. All have access to his grace. All have sinned and deserve God's wrath, and Jesus all have access to the grace of God. And so Like a good doctor, Paul is delivering difficult news. We have a sin problem, and apart from God's grace, our stories rightly end as objects of God's wrath under judgment, but the good news, the good news that he began the letter with is that we have a heavenly Father who will stop at nothing, stop at nothing to rescue us from sin and death, from the consequences of sin and evil. He hates evil. He hates it, and his wrath, his anger is right. Against it, He hates that which hurts his children and he is seeking to put the world to rights. He loves us and he sent his son into the world to seek and save the lost, those living under judgment, the lost. So look to the cross, look to the cross. Jesus took on wrath, the judgment, the justice that we deserved and through faith, fidelity to him, we can be forgiven and we can experience his righteousness and we can have life, real life, life with God. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you, uh, Lord, what we've talked about this morning. And Lord, I pray that anything uh, that I've said that is not from your word and faithful to your word, Lord, that you would strike it from our memories. Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work to press the truth deep within us, to shape us. Lord, that we might again be mirrors, image bearers, of your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue us, that we have good news, that you are the one who has the power to save us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.